So let's go back to the book of Psalms. I want to pick up another thought or two and maybe reiterate what I said yesterday at the end of chapter 10, uh, just based on some of the news that's coming across this morning. It's talking about how he will take care of the desire of the humble and will prepare their heart and will cause your ear to hear. So God is working on preparing our hearts to have them in the right way, the right time, uh, when all these things come down. And we talk quite a bit about the widow and the orphan and how God will judge the fatherless and the oppressed and take care of them. Uh, but the last statement there kind of caught my eye again this morning. It says, the man of the earth, or that the man of the earth, may no more oppress. And on the news this morning, uh, it appears that the protest that has been going in New York and somewhat across this country is now very rapidly expanding. And what is it? It's the 99% basically that has been trodden down by those who have been in a position to oppress them and have taken advantage of that opportunity. So there's violence in Rome today. There are protests in many cities across Europe. And it seems to be spreading across America. We don't know, of course, what this will lead to, but it could become bigger and bigger. Or as colder weather comes, it might kind of diminish and go away because it's very uncomfortable comfortable to be sleeping on the streets when it gets cold and snowy and so on. But we shall see. Nonetheless, the comment I was driving at is that the people of the earth are oppressed. We have been made peasants around the world, and now in this country, uh, that number is growing as well. The homeless, those in soup kitchens and so on, is growing uh, very, very rapidly in this country. Something that most Americans probably have assumed would never happen here. That was something for the third world, and yet we are very quickly descending into a third or fourth world status, and most do not even recognize it yet. This is a little blip that will take care of itself, you know, in a year or two or three or four. We'll have a little more recession or whatever, but we'll get over it because that's what happens here. Well, that's not true. God is going to see that the earth will no more be oppressed. And the time that that will occur is what we are celebrating here at the Feast of Tabernacles, when all people will have opportunity for wealth and health and strength and security and happiness in a way that is impossible in this world today. So let's not forget what we're doing here during this time. Going on to Psalm 11, it says, In the eternal I put my trust. God has just shown that he is going to take care of things. And in this other psalm, David continues the thought, whether it was written right after or not, who knows, but it's a continuation of the same thought. In the eternal put I my trust. How say you to my soul, flee as a bird to your mountain? There's another psalm later on that says, Oh, that I had the wings of a dove that I could fly away from the troubles and tribulations and difficulties that I face. And I think that thought is encapsulated a little bit here. You know, it'd be nice to just fly away to the mountain or to Mount Zion 
we, we know ultimately probably that is the place of safety that God has defined in the Bible. Wouldn't it be nice to just go there? Well, conditions aren't such that you can't. But wouldn't it be nice to just fly away to our mountain? However, that is not yet the time, or it is not yet the time. It's not applicable yet. For lo, the wicked bend their bow, they make ready their arrow upon the string, that they may privately shoot at the upright in heart. So we see things deteriorating around us. We see freedoms being taken away, almost gone for the most part, really. <coughs> and yet it's not time to go. Be nice to get away from all this. You can't do it. If the foundations be destroyed, what can the righteous do? We see the foundation, the Constitution, being destroyed. We see the foundation of our infrastructure being destroyed. And in the church, we have seen essentially the foundations destroyed and the house torn down, just as God said it would happen. So what do you do if you seek to be righteous during this period of time? For the most part, it doesn't seem like there's much that can be done, is there? There are those who are trying to resurrect worldwide and having precious little luck at it, or success, maybe I should say. Nothing seems much to be happening. It's almost like squirrels in a treadmill going round and round and round, but not getting anywhere, putting forth a lot of energy, a lot of effort, doing a lot of printing and talking, but nothing happens. And they might point out, well, it's not happening where you are either. That's fine. I accept that. I don't expect it here. I really don't. Because I see what the Scriptures say will happen, and it is getting worse, not better, throughout the church. Even the big ones are splitting now. So it is not a time of growth in numbers. It is not a time of preaching the gospel. It's a time of getting the bride ready and getting the spit and the vomit off her. The foundation has been destroyed. And it's time, it is a time of repentance, not a time of growth. How can God use that which was worthless to him and thereby spit out? He is not going to bless the efforts of any of us until we get spiritually to the point we need to be so that we are usable for his purposes. That's just where the church is. So what can the righteous do? Essentially nothing but get ourselves spiritually prepared. That we can do. That is the reason God said he would spit us out of his mouth, is we were lukewarm and not on fire. And now that that has happened, the whole object that God has in mind is to heat it up or that we turn cold so that it's easier to make a decision about us. So he says, what can you do? Anyway, the eternal is in his holy temple. That is the church. We are the temple of God. He's in it still, and yet nothing much is happening. The eternal throne is in heaven. It will soon be here, but that's where it is now. His eyes behold. His eyelids try the children of men. He isn't asleep. He's watching. He's looking. He's weighing. He's pondering. The eternal, the eternal tries the righteous, 
but the wicked in him that loves violence, his soul hates. He's not really working with those who are not called at this point. In a sense, they get a free ride. The whole Christian world, the Muslim world, the Shintoists and Buddhists, and on and on you go, are not having their opportunity at salvation now. And when Christ returns, they will not be eternally judged. Because their judgment will take place when they are given the truth in the world tomorrow, or the great white throne judgment if they're resurrected there. How can God judge the wicked eternally when they've never known the truth? And even Protestants who think they are Christian have never known the truth. They don't even begin to grasp as Mike could have gone on reading a little further, that I will show you my faith by my works, and that faith without works is dead. How do they skip that? They don't have spiritual understanding that faith and works go together. It's not grace alone. It's law and grace, not law or grace. And on and on it goes. Because even though they have the name Christian, even as the Pharisees had the name of Abraham and the name of the Father, they were not converted. They didn't have real truth. And they didn't even know what they worshipped. Well, God is fair. And He's going to give everyone a full, solid chance once they learn the truth and their minds are opened to it. And that's what this week and the last great day picture is God giving the whole world that chance. I made a comment the other day about how God will throw some in the lake of fire. I think that's going to be a very small number. It will only be people who have been given the truth, accepted it, and for some reason turned from God once they really understood. And God is not going to be a failure. We need to understand that. When he says all Israel is going to be saved, he essentially means that. Not every individual, but most. If most are not ultimately saved, who wins? Satan the devil. Do you think for a moment Satan's going to win this thing? No, not at all. God is going, before this is over, to save most of the people who ever lived on the face of this earth. Now, they may have died in sin and wickedness, but they'll be resurrected in humility and meekness and learn the truth and follow it and be saved. What a great God we have that has a Feast of Tabernacles and a last great day. Christmas and Easter and Valentine's Day just don't cut it. But God's plan does. So, he's trying the righteous now. He hates the violence and hatred of the wicked, but he's not really dealing with it now. He's dealing with those who understand the truth and righteousness. Upon the wicked he shall rain snares, fire, and brimstone, and a horrible tempest. They shall be the portion of their cup. He has it reserved. The prophecies all tell about famine, pestilence, disease, war, across the face of the earth in the next few years. But notice, for the righteous eternal loves righteousness. He's righteous, and he loves to see righteousness. 
His countenance does behold the upright. So he's not paying as much attention to the wicked now. He knows what he is going to do there and how he's going to turn them around through death and resurrection. But the ones he really has his eye on are those who are upright and seeking righteousness. They're the ones he's focused on. Why? A, he likes righteousness since he's righteous, as it says. And B, now is the day of salvation or judgment upon those who understand. It is not the final judgment on anyone else but us who understand. This is our chance. Others get theirs later. I know we know that. Let's not let it slip away. Psalm 12. Help, eternal. For the godly man ceases, for the faithful fail from among the children of men. Those who will seek God, serve God, obey God, are diminishing rapidly. Look how quickly it diminished in the church. About half went evangelical, boom, overnight almost. And others are falling aside, all kinds of and manner of things happening to them. So there aren't many left. They speak vanity, everyone with his neighbor, with flattering lips and with a double heart do they speak. So not true sincerity, and our motives are not always what they ought to be. And the world is full of that. People who will tell you one thing while they're thinking another, and will speak kindly to your face while they stab you in the back. We do enough of that with words as it is, and it's an area that we have to work on. The eternal shall cut off all flattering lips and the tongue that speaks proud or vain things. There is no room for pride anywhere in our lives. God hates pride. Pride comes before a fall. It's been said many times, the father did not even say to his son, I'm proud, son, of what you did. Now, if anybody has right to be proud, it would be the father in heaven. He just said, I'm well pleased. Pride in human beings takes many forms. Who have said, with our tongue will we prevail, our lips are our own. Who is Lord over us? I'm a self-directed man, I'm a self-made man, whatever. Uh, my destiny is in my hands. Americans have been that way. And our destiny is, in one sense, being taken out of our hands. Truly, we have handed it over through disobedience to Almighty God and taken this land that he gave back to us after many generations of being away from it, and in 400 years we have destroyed pretty much the land and any society and culture that was here. And we are in the dying throes of the American empire today. For the oppression of the poor, for the sighing of the needy, now will I arise. It is interesting, as we read this, that the poor and the needy are beginning to do demonstrations and to arise and try to do something about it in whatever feeble way they think they can, 
But it is the time, God says, that he will hear that cry and he will arise and he's going to take care of the problem in his way. I will arise, says the Eternal. I will set him in safety from him that puffs at him. They, in their great vanity and swelling words of being billionaires and the elite or the illumined ones or whatever form of bragging they take, and look down upon the rest of us peasants that they intend to totally control, God says he'll take care of it. The words of the eternal are pure words, as silver tried in a furnace, a furnace of earth, purified seven times. What we find in his word here is something that he has gone through, sifted out, inspired people to write, and he has gone through it seven times, purifying it to be sure it's exactly what he wanted said. That is why we can trust the Bible the way we can. Now, I understand that there are some translation errors. There's uh, old 1611 English and various things. So, those things are not perfect, but the way God originally inspired it, it was. And he is strong enough and powerful enough that he has been able to bring it forth to us still intact. There is some translation error here and there that is fairly easily looked up and corrected if we go to the Hebrew and the Greek where men have made mistakes. And we can study out and discern the truth. But backward and forward throughout this book, it all fits together perfectly. And the more I study it over the years, the more I see that. And I think we've seen it especially the last few years, that it matters not where we go. Anywhere in the book, the book, it all fits together and it says the same thing. The law, the prophets, the writings, the New Testament, all fits together perfectly and it all is coming together right now in a final fulfillment. And any part of the Bible you read is talking about today and tomorrow and the next few years ahead. Its message is pertinent. It is not old. It is not just history. It is all prophecy. So, even as we read this, clear back here in the Psalms written thousands of years ago, we find that it fits perfectly what's happening in the world and in the news this very day. And will fit even better as things get worse. God is incredible in His ability to know the past and the future. You shall keep them, O Eternal. You shall preserve them for, from this generation forever. The wicked walk on every side when the vilest men are exalted. God's word is here, but nobody pays much attention to it. So wickedness is on every side, and yet God's word is there to tell us what the real truth is and what we ought to be doing in order to lift ourselves away from this world and to God. Chapter 13, how long will you forget me, O Eternal? Remember, we've 
addressed that thought a little earlier here yesterday. How long, O God? It's something that comes up fairly frequently because we are in despair. The whole world groans, the whole creation groans, it says, for Christ to return and everything to be set straight again in the millennium. How long will you forget me, O Eternal? Forever? How long will you hide your face from me? We've read many scriptures that show that right now he's hidden his face, turned it away from the church, but he says he will wipe away our sins as a cloud very shortly and turn his face back to us when he gets the desired response from us. It isn't long. How long shall I take counsel of my soul, having sorrow in my heart daily? How long shall my enemy be exalted over me? Consider and hear me, O Eternal my God. Lighten my eyes, lest I sleep the sleep of death. Discouraging to the point you just want to crawl in a hole sometimes and pull it in over you. Seems that man's existence has always had certain elements of this. And recall, too that much of this section uh, had to do with Christ's feelings uh, expressed by David, who had the same ones, because this is what Christ went through as a human being. He had to deal with the hatred of many enemies. If David had enemies, Christ probably had even more, and was in distress on every side at all times, by the pressure that was put on him by mankind around him. Lest my enemies say I have prevailed against him, and those that trouble me rejoice when I am moved. And ultimately, with Christ, they did triumph over him. They killed him. Lo and behold, he was resurrected shortly thereafter, but they did kill him. But I have trusted in your mercy. My heart shall rejoice in your salvation. So even though he ultimately died three days later, he was rejoicing. We may die, but in the next split second of consciousness, we also could be rejoicing. David only lived age 70. He's going to be king of all Israel. And he did not have a long life in that sense, uh, about the average of what God said would be from a certain point on. Some of you have lived well beyond David's 70. We, by reason of strength, sometimes live longer. (coughs) But he's dead in his grave waiting too. I will sing to the Eternal because he has dealt bountifully with me. We may have our trials, our troubles, our discouragements, and so on, but man, we've got to count our blessings, don't we? Look at what we know. Look at where we are. Look at what we see. Look at the opportunity ahead of what we understand of the mystery of God and how we'll become God. When you you consider the blessings on one hand, the discouragements and frustrations are pretty small by comparison. Our problem is just keeping that perspective. It's so easy to get our minds and hearts and emotions on our problems, and then forget what we have. Fourteen, 
The fool has said in his heart, there is no God. A lot of people claim to be atheists. They're fools. They are corrupt. They have done abominable works. There is none that does good. The Eternal looks down from heaven upon the children of men to see if there were any that did understand and seek God. They are all gone aside. They are all together become filthy. There is none that does good. No, not one. Even the psalmist himself, though he was seeking to serve and obey God, still made mistakes. But to him, from his perspective as king of Israel, there were so very few people around who were of good character, of good nature, of, of being upstanding and upright and righteous. God only picked out a very few from the Old Testament, Hebrews 11 plus a few, out of all the billions that lived. So, from David's perspective, it looked like everybody was evil. Just as you can walk out in a city today somewhere and you see evil all around you. There's not anybody that does anything any good. Doesn't mean that there probably weren't individuals, but from his perspective, it appeared that way. And if you want to say truly good or fully righteous, no, there's not even one. Not even David. Have all the workers of iniquity no knowledge, who eat up my people as they eat bread and call not upon the eternal? There were they in great fear, for God is in the generation of the righteous. He said, this generation that you and I represent will not pass away until Christ has returned to this earth. Now, the generation called here in the end time is quickly shrinking through people falling away, or through death. And he is calling very, very few in the tenth or eleventh hour to replace those who are dying. So based on the fruits of what we see before our very eyes, all the efforts and millions of dollars being spent by various organizations of the Church of God are having very little effect. It is not like it was in the 50s, 60s, and 70s, and even into the 80s, where tens of thousands of people were being called. It isn't happening today, and I'll tell you, it is not going to, because that's what the Scripture says. Don't mark my words, mark God's, if you get in your Bible enough to read it and understand it. <coughs> Now, where was I here? They don't call upon the eternal. Uh, I guess verse 5. They were, there were they in great fear, for God is in the generation of the righteous. We read that. He's with this generation. He's working with us. And he's going to see that a certain amount of us come through and do the work at the end that needs to be done. And he even shows about 30% who go into the tribulation of the church will repent there before they lose their lives and are then resurrected at the last trump. You have shamed the counsel of the poor because the eternal is his refuge. People don't look upon God. The fool says there's no God. God doesn't matter anymore. What's God doing? God doesn't see. And yet he does see those who take refuge in him. And if we're doing that, and I think we are for the most part, he's paying attention to us.
Oh, that the salvation of Israel were come out of Zion. When the Eternal brings back the captivity of his people, Jacob shall rejoice and Israel shall be glad. We can put a lot of scriptures together here to show that God's people are going to flee to Zion where they will have refuge and out of Zion will come the word of God to be used as a witness against the whole world. And at that time, when we are taken out of this captivity of Babylon that we've been in the midst of all this time, and the satanic culture all around us, it will be a time of great rejoicing. The thought is carried into Psalm 15. Eternal, who shall abide in your tabernacle? Who shall dwell in your holy hill? The hill of Zion, the hill of Jerusalem. That is his holy hill. That's the hill, those are the hills that he has chosen. And he will operate from there. We need to be sure we're on the right hill, and it is the holy hill, not a fabrication and a counterfeit of Satan. We need to get that proved for sure, because our lives depend upon it. Do we know what we think we know? We better prove it. <clears throat> if we're wrong, we better start buying tickets to Jerusalem over there. If we're right, we better stay right here. Now, how important is this study that we have embarked upon? I hope you catch the vision. I hope we don't forget it, and I hope we carry through and search our Bibles and find out. You know, the church has been criticized for a long time. Well, you just do whatever Armstrong says, or you just do whatever Takat says, or let's draw it down. Well, you people just do whatever Daryl Henson says. I'm challenging you to be sure you don't do that, okay? Prove all things. Hold fast that which is good. If this is wrong, we need to know. And if it's right, we really need to know. Okay? Who's going to come and dwell on his holy hill? Ultimately, of course, that would be the new Jerusalem and the holy hill of the original Jerusalem where he sets up his headquarters when the Father and Son come down at the beginning of the millennium. <clears throat> but this is about who will it be? He that walks uprightly and works righteousness and speaks the truth in his heart. This is in our hymn book as well. We sing it fairly often. He that backbites not with his tongue, nor does evil to his neighbor, nor takes up a reproach against his neighbor. Did Christ quote this? Was this written a long time ago? And he says, love your neighbors yourself. Treat them as you would want to be treated. This is all New Testament teaching right here, isn't it? Buried in the Psalms. In whose eyes a vile person is condemned, but he honors them that fear the eternal. He that swears to his own hurt, and changes not. He that puts not out his money to usury, nor takes reward against the innocent. He that does these things shall never be moved. We have a system today which is highly usurious. They'll offer you a bait of 2 or 3% interest on a loan, and then if you miss a payment or have one late payment, suddenly you're paying 25-30%. And they will rip you financially to death given half a chance. And they've had a half a chance, and they are. 
God says he's not going to tolerate that in the world tomorrow. Those who stand on his holy hill are not going to tear people up and ruin them as is being done today. <clears throat> Chapter 16, Preserve me, O God, for in you do I put my trust. We pray that we be accounted worthy, that God take care of us in spite of ourselves. We trust Him. It's a living faith. We move forward obeying Him and serving Him, and it's a lively belief. It's a wholehearted trust that we come to have in God. Do we really trust God? We vary on that. We all go up and down on that. Sometimes we trust Him more than others. In moments of fear or concern or worry, sometimes we go other routes because we do not have full, absolute trust and confidence that what He has in mind for us is best. Whether we live or whether we die, whether we're sick or whether we're healthy, That kind of faith does not come necessarily overnight. It takes time to build. We pray. We work at. God delivers. That helps us have more confidence and trust in Him. But he says, the prayer of the faith of the righteous man avails much. Because the confidence and trust increases the more we obey Him. The less we obey and the more sins we allow in our lives, the less trust we put in Him and have faith in Him because our own sins destroy our confidence. That's where it goes. So the less we sin, the more we'll trust God. The more of our lives we'll put in His hands. O oh my soul, you have said to the Eternal, You are my Lord. My goodness extends not to you, but to the saints that are in the earth, and to the excellent in whom is all my delight. Their sorrow shall be multiplied that hasten after another god. Their drink offerings of blood will I not offer, nor take up their names into my lips. David says, I see the difference between those who will obey God and those who will not. And I'm going to pay attention to those that don't. The eternal is the portion of my inheritance and of my cup. You maintain my lot. You're the one that takes care of me. Isn't that what Christ said? Don't take anxious thought for today or tomorrow. I'll take care of you. I know all your needs before you even recognize them. So if you'll serve, trust, you'll be okay. Now, isn't third tithe an act of faith? Over the years, I've seen hundreds, thousands of people who read that and they thought, I'm looking at my budget, I'm looking at my income and my job and my prospects for a raise and my bills, and I can't do this. And in faith, they step out and do it, and somehow, some way, 
they have sufficient to get through the year, to faithfully keep that which God has asked them to do for the poor and the widow and the orphan and so on. And it works out. Sometimes without a raise, but the car doesn't break. Or, you know, things that could have happened didn't. And blessings that they didn't expect came upon them. And somehow it happened that they actually made it through the year and we're still eating when the year ended. Now, we're about to embark upon that as a group this year for the first time together. And things are getting worse in the economy of this world. <clears throat> but this is something that God requires of us. Will it be easy? Maybe not. It'll be easier for some than others. But it is stepping out in faith expecting that God will take care of us. And that's how our relationship with Him is built. Peter saw Christ and said, Hey, I'm going to come see you. Started walking across the water, running whatever he did, to see Christ. <clears throat> and then he looked down and said, I can't do this, and then he couldn't. So do we trust God to make up the difference? To be able to see us through now, many of you can go back decades and you've done this and you've seen it happen and you have more confidence than maybe somebody who has not done it because you've seen God answer. And that makes you more confident that it can and will happen and God will take care of you. Let's see. Verse 5, The eternal is a portion of my inheritance and of my cup. You maintain my lot. In other words, you take care of me. The lines are fallen to me in pleasant places. That would be property lines. God had given him the space, the opportunity, the place that he needed. In pleasant places. He allowed him to dwell in a pleasant place in Jerusalem. Yes, I have a goodly heritage in the middle of the promised land. Now, God took us away from this promised land that we live in today for many generations because of the sin of Israel, because of the sin of our forebears. And then we filtered our way through the Middle East, back up to Europe, and then God allowed us to come back here to try again. Because he had promised Abraham that it would be so. And this nation, this people, has failed. And is about to be taken into captivity one last time. You and I have opportunity to escape that. Let us take it seriously, brethren. I don't want us to fail. I want to be there. I want you to be there. This is our opportunity. God has given us a goodly heritage. I think even by bringing us out here away from the cities and into the country and into the wilderness, that alone puts us in a whole lot better situation than most Americans and most people on earth. That alone. And that's what he told us in Micah 4. 
get out of the city, go dwell in the country. Go get out in the open spaces, he said. We have done that, and we are better off for it. So he's put us right here very near the center of the promised land. I believe Zion and Jerusalem are in this part of the southwestern United States. And he's put us right at the door. I find it not ironic at all that these are the Canaan Mountains right out here, and we're on the outside of them. We're poised on the edge, just as Israel was poised to go into the land of Canaan, but not there. God knows exactly what he's doing. So he saw to it that this property opened up and in such a way that it was, I think, miraculous for us to be here. And it's about two miles from the Canaan Mountains, or thereabouts. Now, is that happenstance? I don't think so. I think he's here to try us, to test us, to cause us to grow, to give us opportunity before we go into that specific part that is to be developed as the temple grounds in Jerusalem is a light and an example to the world. It's not to be taken lightly. We need to count our blessings, even as David was counting his here. I will bless the Eternal who has given me counsel. My reigns also instruct me in the night seasons. So he says, I'm, I'm aware of this day and night. I think about it on my bed. I have set the eternal always before me. God is central in his thinking. That was true of Christ. It was essentially true of David, though he got sidetracked and lost focus at times, just as we do. But he's telling us this is the way it ought to be. God is our focus, always before me. Because he is at my right hand, I shall not be moved. Hebrews quotes this, that the righteous will not be moved. We see a lot of people who were in the church of God who today have been moved. They moved over, they moved out, they moved down, they moved to evangelical Protestantism, they've gone all kinds of directions. If we will set our heart and our focus directly on God, we will not be moved. Therefore my heart is glad, and my glory rejoices. My flesh also shall rest in hope. We've hung on. He says, blessed are those that endure to the end there in Matthew 24. Endurance is difficult. Have you ever run an endurance race? It's a lot different than a hundred-yard dash. When you're running a mile or miles, multiple miles or a marathon of 26... Uh, it's an endurance race, and it's not easy. The body gets very tired, and sometimes it's just simply an iron will over matter to finish the race. So God commends those who will hang on, who are enduring. To this point, you're here. To this point, you're enduring. Many different groups around the world of God's splintered church still have people who are enduring. I hope we also not only endure, but I hope we thrive in God, and that He can afford to turn and bless us soon. 
For you will not leave my soul in the grave, neither will you suffer your Holy One to see corruption. Christ did not suffer corruption when he was in the grave for three days. No smell, no stink of death. The direct prophecy of him. And even David could say, I expect to be resurrected, but not to the degree of no corruption as Christ did. You will show me the path of life, and your presence is fullness of joy. At your right hand there are pleasures forevermore. You are reading here words inspired by then Melchizedek, who is the Christ of the New Testament. He was the one, the Word, from the beginning, that God the Father gave to be the Creator, and without Him nothing was made, Colossians 1. He was the moving force of the Old Testament, and He, as the Word, as John 1, 1 tells us, is the one who inspired David and all the writers of the Old Testament to write what they wrote. So, in a very real sense, they are His words. And they pointed to the life that He would live as a human being. He knew where he was going and what would happen when he was made human. So he could write these things well ahead of time. So let's comprehend that when we read these, we're reading the very words of Christ, not just of David. Chapter 17, Hear, hear the right, O Eternal, attend to my cry. Give ear to my prayer that gives not, that goes not out of feigned lips. He says, I'm being sincere here. I want you to hear what my heart says, what's really deeply inside me. Sometimes we hide from ourselves. Sometimes we hide from God. We certainly hide from each other. He was trying to be utterly, openly sincere here. Let my sentence come forth from your presence. Let your eyes behold the things that are equal. Judge righteously, judge rightly, carefully, fairly, he say. You have proved my heart. You have visited me in the night. You have tried me and shall find nothing. I am purposed that my mouth shall not transgress. Couldn't say that of David, really, could you? <coughs> you could say it of Christ. Concerning the works of men, by the word of your lips, I have kept me from the paths of the destroyer. I hope by, as we go through these psalms, we come to understand our Savior, our Redeemer, the God of the Old Testament, the Christ of the New Testament, our husband-to-be at the right hand of God today. I hope as we read these and apply them as being coming as coming directly from him and inspiring the various psalmists and other prophets and so on, that we understand these are the feelings that he had as a human being from deep in his heart. I know I have tended to think of, of it more as David's feelings and emotions in the past, but as I read through here, I, I think I see more clearly that these were all the gamut of emotions Christ went through while he was here on the earth. So they correspond to our deepest feelings and longings and needs as well. 
because we go through trials, troubles, and tribulations, and He came to this earth to go through them so that He might better be a high priest and mediator for us. So, the answers He comes up with, the conclusions He reaches that He inspired to be written are the very things that He thought while He was on the earth. And you see so many things in here written in Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John that he said while he was on the earth. This reflects what he was thinking back then when he was alive on the earth. Same yesterday, today, and forever. Uh, he says, verse 5, Hold up my goings in your paths, that my footsteps slip not. He was under more pressure not to have his feet slip than you and I have ever been because he could not afford to slip once. I have called upon you, for you will hear me, O God. Incline your ear to me and hear my speech. As a human being, he felt the same things we feel, but sometimes he could have been praying to the ceiling because in his human state, he recognized the despair, the discouragement, the sorrow that could overtake him so very easily. And truly, he was a man of sorrows because of all that he saw around him and because of the burden he bore. He said, I'm a man of sorrows. He wasn't always happy. It wasn't a sin to be sorrowful, obviously. But he fought and went through the same emotions we have and pleaded for God to hear him and not ignore him. Show your marvelous loving kindness, O you that save by your right hand them which put their trust in you from those that rise up against them. So the plea is, take care of me. Keep me as the apple of your eye. Hide me under the shadow of your wings. He says the church is the apple of his eye in other places, just as Christ was. He was the first of the first fruits and the real apple of the Father's eye. But we have been included in that. What a blessing to think about. But we've been included with Christ as the apple of God's eye. Hide me under the shadow of your wings. I think it is an interesting testimony that the Jerusalem, I think, is the true original Jerusalem, is laid out geologically, if you look at it from Google, in a roughly square shape. Now, it's not a perfect square because geology isn't that way. But it certainly looks square enough from the air that you could say there lies the city four square. And on the west side, it has what can easily be described as the shape of the wings of a great eagle or of a big bird with even the, the neck place between the wings, there's a, a draw there. God is going to protect his people, and Jerusalem and Zion represent protection for God's people. And Christ describes himself as the wings of a great eagle. Is it ironic or happenstance that he would make a rough geological semblance of that right at the right place? I don't find that strange at all. Verse 9, From the wicked that oppress me, 
from my daily enemies who compass me, or my deadly enemies, excuse me, who compass me about. They are enclosed in their own fat. With their mouth they speak proudly. He talks of the bulls of Bashan, I think, back in chapters 22 or 3. He had those with their mouths gaped open, criticizing him as he was punished. David suffered a great deal from his enemies as well. He's, in that sense, a type of Christ. Christ is the king of Israel. He's also the king, or will be, of the whole earth. David just of Israel itself. But they're very closely tied together. <clears throat> Verse 11, They have now compassed us in our steps. They have set their eyes bowing down to the earth, worshiping the things on the earth, not the things of God. Like is a lion that is greedy of his prey, and as it were a young lion lurking in secret places... Again, Peter referred to Satan as a raging lion seeking whom he may devour, and human beings under the aegis of Satan are the same way. Arise, O Eternal, disappoint him, cast him down, deliver my soul from the wicked one, which is your sword. And how did Christ destroy the wicked one who came to tempt him? They used the word of God, which is the sword. Satan used the Word of God as well, didn't he? On Christ. You can use the Word of God and still deceive and have evil motives. And Satan did. He figured his best chance with Christ was to quote Scripture. But he twisted it out of context and out of the meaning, and Christ set him straight and won. <coughs> Verse 14, from men which are your hand, O Eternal, from men of the world, which have their portion in this life, and whose belly you fill with your hid treasure. They are full of children, and leave the rest of their substance to their babes. Well, he says they have their portion here. They have children. They have grandchildren. They trust in materiality. As for me, I will behold your face in righteousness. I shall be satisfied when I awake with your likeness. There's another good proof scripture for our future, that we are truly to become God and be in his likeness and the same kind he is, just as 1 Corinthians 15 points out. So whether this is speaking of Christ, who held his, beheld his Father's faith in, righteous, faith in righteousness and died and was resurrected shortly thereafter, and when and was glorified, and now has the likeness of God again, or speaking of David, who will be in the first resurrection, and will wake up in the likeness of God. So if it applied to Christ as the first of the first fruits, it applies to David and you and me as those who follow as first fruits. Prophecy for the future. Psalm 18. I will love you, O eternal, my strength. So here is a dedication now to God, and an expression of love toward God. Example of Christ and David for us. The Eternal is my rock and my fortress and my deliverer. He's the chief cornerstone of the temple. Ephesians 2.20 My God, my strength, in whom I will trust, my buckler and the horn of my salvation and my high tower. Do we look to our bank account? Do we look to our job? Do we look to our physical strength? Do we look to our health? Do we look to this or to that? 
Or do we look to God? As everything that we will, He has everything we will ever need and is capable of blessing us mentally, emotionally, spiritually, physically, in every way. As I said the other day, we limit Him greatly. He is unlimited. He can do whatever He wishes. But if we are to come to have holy, righteous character and be like God, and the minute He blesses us, we sit down and forget God, then that (laughs) destroys His purpose in us. So we limit Him by unthankfulness, by disbelief, by Laodiceanism. Therefore, He cannot bless us. Uh, we, we have a translation problem in our heads, don't we? Well, God, why don't you bless me? <laughs> you said you would bless us. Where's my blessing? <clears throat> it's real easy for him to turn around and say, well, where's your devotion? Where's your obedience? Where's your faith? Only bless those who put their faith in me, who trust me. You're taking other means and methods of getting what you want, whatever it might be, and you're not putting your full faith and trust in me. Healing is one of those things that we need to consider. Now, we have often trouble trusting God with our health. (coughs) We're physical. We don't want to die physically. And we can't see God And we don't know whether He'll heal us in this life or not. And we don't want to die. So, boy, are we going to find some other way to get what we think we want. The I wish, I hope, against hope of putting it in God's hands is sometimes not faith. We take it from God and give it to someone else. That's why God told Asa, who was diseased in his feet, you will die because you went to the doctors. Now, I don't know the exact context there, but it's something we need to consider along with a whole lot more scriptures that I won't go to today. But once in a while I hear somebody Somebody makes a choice and says, I'm going to trust God with my help. And then there are those who will go around and try to convince them to do otherwise. Shame on us. Now, you may not have that faith. You may distrust, and you may have a better solution in your mind. But do you dare destroy the faith of a little one? How badly do you want a millstone tied around your neck and thrown into the lake of fire? We need to think about that. Faith is hard to come by. And if somebody starts showing some, you had dare not get in their way. Whether you have any or not, If they do, leave it alone. 
That's what Christ said. Faith is hard enough to come by without us tearing each other down and saying, well, you ought to do something different than what you've chosen to do. Okay? It's not me. That's God. You want to go back there and read it? Matthew? It's there. We've read it many times. Have faith if you can. If you don't, get out of somebody's way if they're trying to. Please. He is our fortress and our deliverer, our strength and our buckler. It's hard for us to come to live, verse 2 of Psalm 18. It is very difficult for us to come to live that. But that's what we're here for. It's to not, 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 <clears throat> not let any of God's words drop to the ground, but to live by every word of God. We're here to learn faith. We're here to learn trust. We're here to learn love. We're helped to help each other in those things, not pull each other down. Even as David and Christ write here those very things. I will call upon the Eternal, who is worthy to be praised. So shall I be saved from my enemies. Now, let me comment. I know I cannot legislate faith. I can't tell you, go have faith. That is something that can only be built between you and God. But scriptures like these should help us build that. They should give us encouragement and strength, because it doesn't always just come automatically or overnight. It's something that has to be built in our relationship as we build it with God. So it's not something you can just say, and it's that easy to come by. Sometimes we have to change a great deal of our thinking and come to trust in God. That has been something that's been the problem from Adam and Eve until today. They did not have faith that what God said was the right answer. Satan came along and just bang like that took them away from God and from their belief and trust that what he said was the best thing for them. And we as a race have had that problem ever since. Now, I do believe that once the Holy Spirit came in Acts 2, people are now capable of trusting God in a way that most were unable to beforehand. And only a handful of individuals ever had. Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and David, and Moses, and a very few. But how many started standing up after Acts 2, like Stephen, like Philip, like others, and put forth their firm trust and believe that by the Spirit of God we can overcome? And thousands did. And I believe in this end time, thousands can again. 
that out of the tens of thousands that God called into the church here at the end time, there will be a few ten thousands who will. A faithful remnant to start with, about 10%, and another 30 that are going to wake up in the tribulation repent and likely give up their physical life so that they might save their eternal life. And I think most of the church ultimately will be saved. Because probably a lot of those who came to know the truth, to understand a certain amount of it, were probably never truly converted anyway and gave it up so quickly. They may not have fully had their chance yet. I don't know that. But I know God is fair, and I know He's a Father that will preserve His children, and His work on this earth will be a resounding success. And there will be very few that have the weeping and gnashing of teeth, because God is capable of saving the world. Satan is not capable of taking it away from him. So let us learn to trust God with everything in our hearts and minds and our lives as much as we possibly can, because He's our only salvation. He's the only one that can see us through. So while I might get intense about what we need to do and be careful with each other, I understand the problem that we face and that I face and trusting God with every aspect of my life. It's hard to do. Verse 4, The sorrows of death compassed me, and the floods of ungodly men made me afraid. The sorrows of hell compassed me about. The snares of death prevented me. There are all kinds of things that will pull us down. He's just said, God is my fortress, He's my deliverance, He's my strength, He's my trust. And yet I have all this stuff that's pulling me down. In my distress, I called upon the Eternal and cried to my God. He heard my voice out of His temple, and my cry came before Him, even to His ears. As I've said before, He says, don't give Him any rest until He makes Jerusalem a joy. Don't just go on saying, well, I guess it'll happen when it happens. He wants to hear the cry of his people. Remember how he heard it when we were in the land of Mitzrayim, making bricks, and then bricks without straw? And how he finally heard the cry of his people. Now, did he have a plan to get them out of there long before they came out? He even said before they went in to Abraham, you're going to... Your children are going to be in the land of Mitzrayim for 400 years. This is going to happen. And they will cry out, and eventually I will bring them out of there. And he started preparing Moses way ahead of time to get the job done. But as they made the bricks, they didn't see that deliverance. And even as they saw God's anger start coming down on Mitzrayim, that incredible empire, they saw it come on them too. And finally, they saw a separation. We see it coming down on us. We suffer. 
the economic difficulties and troubles of the world. We're suffering the health issues of the world. But one of these days, God is going to make a separation guaranteed by His Word. We have to do our part, and we'll be included in that. Walk by faith. The just shall live by faith. Not doubt, not fear, not insecurity, but they will make God their buckler and their deliverer and their strength and their trust, the horn of their salvation. So he says, He heard my voice out of his temple, and my cry came before him even to his ears. Then the earth shook and trembled. The foundations also of the hills moved and were shaken because he was angry. Sounds like the earthquake at the time Christ died, but it sounds a lot like the day of the Lord and the troubles that are coming at the end of this age where he predicts earthquakes, famines, and pestilences and all kinds of trouble. And we're seeing earthquakes increasing very rapidly even the last few weeks all over the earth. Well, at some point, God is going to hear our cry as He heard Christ's, and He's going to shake this earth. Foundations of the hills were moved and were shaken because He was angry. There went up a smoke out of His nostrils and fire out of His mouth devoured. Coals were kindled by it. He bowed the heavens also and came down, and darkness was under His feet. He rode upon a cherub and did fly. Yes, He did fly upon the wings of the wind. This is a hymn we sing out of the book. He made darkness his secret place. His pavilion round about him were dark waters and thick clouds of the skies. So when he starts stirring up the trouble, it's going to be all around him and all over. Because he is central to the whole thing. And the brightness that was before him, his thick clouds passed. Hailstones and coals of fire. 120 pound hailstones, the book of Revelation says. This is prophecy. At the brightness that was before him, his thick clouds passed. Hailstones and coals of fire, the eternal thundered in the heavens, and the highest gave his voice, hailstones and coals of fire. Notice that all of this comes right after it says, He heard my voice and he heard my cry. Cry out. Let God hear our voice as he heard Israel murmuring, in the land of Mitzriah, as we murmur in the throes of the grip of Babylon today. Let him hear our voice. Never give it up. Cry day and night. Fourteen, yes, he sent out his arrows and scattered them, and he shot out lightnings and discomfited them. Then the channels of waters were seen, and the foundations of the world were discovered at your rebuke, O Eternal at the blast of the breath of your nostrils. He takes it back and reminds us right here of the Red Sea parting. So it's a historical lesson, and it's a prophetic lesson. He sent from above. He took me. He drew me out of many waters. Drew them out of the Red Sea. said it was a type of baptism. Drew Christ out of the heavy waters, the heaviness that he was in. And he will do the same with us. He delivered me from my strong enemy and from them which hated me, for they were too strong for me. It's just too much for us, isn't it? He'll deliver us. 
They prevented me in the day of my calamity, but the eternal was my stay. doesn't matter what happens, God is always there. Why don't we have more faith? He called us out of this world by name. He numbers our hair. He ponders our heart. He knows us by name. We're part of the apple of his eye, and yet we doubt him. It's incredible what human nature and Satan and the culture around us can do to keep us from the very one who created this beautiful earth that we look at as we walk out of this building. How feeble, how faint, how frail we are. And how hard it is to generate the kind of trust that we need. It doesn't come easy. It is purchased on our knees. It is purchased in obedience. It is purchased in the blood of Christ to forgive our sins and give us hope every morning, as Lamentations tells us. But he's making some promises here in all this. Uh, verse 19, He brought me forth also into a large place. He delivered me because he delighted in me. He says he delights in his people. That is his pleasure, his, pardon me, it is his good pleasure to give us the kingdom. That's what he so deeply desires, is to give us that kingdom. It's not a matter of him saying, well, I made you, and now well, maybe I'll let you live. He is just sitting on the edge of his throne pulling for us, because he wants so badly and desperately to bless us, and yet we limit him by our unbelief. <coughs> No wonder, he says, turn to me with your whole heart, with all your being, heart, mind, body, and soul, trusting him in these trying times. And we're being encouraged to do that right here. The Eternal rewarded me according to my righteousness, according to the cleanness of my hands, as he recompensed me. For I have kept the ways of the Eternal, and have not wickedly departed from my God. For all his judgments were before me, and I did not put away his statutes from me. I was also upright before him, and I kept myself from my iniquity. Words of Christ, words of David imperfect, but that was his goal and his purpose, as it is ours who are imperfect. And God can save us out of it all. But at least our goal and our purpose is headed the right direction, so do not be discouraged. He was the only perfect one. James, Peter, John, Luke, Matthew, none of them were, just as we aren't. So even though there is a plea here to learn to trust God, we should not be discouraged if we do not have everything yet that Christ had. But he points the way. He set the example. He shows us, as our elder brother what we need to do. Now, this should be encouraging. He said, I did it. Follow in my footsteps. Therefore, has the eternal recompensed me according to my righteousness, according to the cleanness of my hands in his eyesight. Or as he observed what I did down here. <clears throat> With the merciful, you will show yourself merciful. Isn't that the Sermon on the Mount? I will show mercy to them who show mercy. I will forgive those who forgive. Christ was just quoting what he had already inspired clear back here. With an upright man you will show yourself upright. 
With the pure, you will show yourself pure. And with the presumptuous, you will show yourself presumptuous. So God says, I'm going to treat you just like you treat other human beings. That's what he said in the Sermon on the Mount. That's what he said clear back here. Did David have some spiritual understanding of New Testament doctrine? I do believe he did. For you will save the afflicted people, but will bring down high looks. That's what Peter said. Get rid of pride and others. For you will light my candle. The eternal my God will enlighten my darkness. It is only through him that we have become the true Illuminati. There are those who claim to be illumined, but have no light. The Mormons claim to be the Latter-day Saints, but they are not. They took that from Isaiah, where it says the saints of the latter day. But they aren't saints. Now, they're nice people, but they don't understand the truth, and this is not their day of judgment. It'll come in the millennium or the great white throne judgment. We are the latter-day saints who understand the Word of God and have been converted and received His Holy Spirit. So they've taken a name that doesn't fit. We have taken a name, and we need to be sure that we do fit it. Verse 29, For by you I have run through a troop of a whole bunch of people, and by my God have I leaped over a wall. Now they talk sometimes about he who can leap over tall buildings and run fast as a bullet and all those things that businesses use to try to encourage people to be super business people. But given God's Spirit in the future that we are to have, we will be able to leap over a wall. As for God, His way is perfect. The word of the eternal is tried. He is a butler to all those that trust in Him. His way is perfect. And there are those who preceded us, who walked in faith, like Abraham, who walked in perfection, Christ, and who followed His footsteps, however imperfectly, in the apostles in the early New Testament church. So His way is tried and true. And Hebrews 11 gives you a list, short list, of a lot of people who will be in the kingdom of God. So let's go that way. Let's follow in their footsteps. For who is God, save the eternal? Who is a rock, save our God? It is God that girds me with strength and makes my way perfect. We can't do it on our own. We have to turn to Him. He makes my feet like hinds feet and sets me up upon my high places. He'll give us the legs of deer to move forward when we are old, feeble, and falling apart. He teaches my hands to war so that a bow of steel is broken by my arms. Of course, we can go to Ephesians and see what the weapons of our warfare are. Sword of the Spirit, or the Word, helmet, shield, of God. You have also given me the shield of your salvation. <clears throat> your right hand has held me up, and the, your gentleness has made me great. Paul quoted this. You have enlarged my steps under me, that my feet did not slip. I have pursued my enemies and overtaken them. Neither did I turn again till they were consumed. Christ started out on this earth as a babe, then as a boy, and all of his enemies out there, the Pharisees, the Sadducees, the disobedient of the world were ahead of him. 
But he caught up with them and he passed them up through the righteousness of God. David had a lot of enemies too, but he won out over them through God. I have wounded them that were not able to rise, they are fallen under my feet. For you have girded me with strength to the battle. You have subdued under me those that rose up against me. We go to God for strength, for help, for encouragement, for inspiration, so that we can fight the good fight. You have given me the next of my enemies that I might destroy them that hate me. They cried, but there was none to save them, even to the eternal, but he answered the not. Then did I beat them small as the dust before the wind. Doesn't he say that the wicked will become ashes under the feet of the righteous? This is history, but it is also prophecy. Verse 43, you've delivered me from the strivings of the people, and you've made me the head of the heathen. A people whom I have not known shall serve me. Doesn't it say they'll all come and bow before us? As soon as they hear of me, they shall obey me. Well, they're not ready to do that yet. This has got to be millennial after God has shaken it all out and killed most of mankind. And then they're going to say, oh, God spoke. I want to go hear that. Whole different attitude. The strangers shall fade away and be afraid out of their close places. Here's a simple statement. The eternal lives. He is the living God. If we believe He is alive, then we should respond to Him. And blessed be my rock, and let the God of my salvation be exalted. So in all these troubles troubles and difficulties we have in life, uh, He goes through it, He explains it, what I'm going through, but He always turns back and says, Glory to God in the highest. He's alive, trust Him, believe Him, exalt Him. It is God that avenges me and subdues the people under me. He delivers me from my enemies. Yes, those that lift me up above those that rise up against me. You have delivered me from the violent man. What about when the two witnesses are killed in Jerusalem and the world has a party and sends emails all over the world? Let's party. We finally got rid of them. That won't last long. Three-day party and it's all over. God gives the victory. So as he's done in the past and did with Christ, he's going to do with the end-time church as well. And when the world gasps that human beings that they just killed are resurrected, we will rise to meet Christ in the air, won't we? And the world will have been subdued and our enemies set aside. And then they will worship us. And then we will be worthy of worship. Will we not? There is more in this book about the years just ahead and the millennial reign of Christ than probably we have ever imagined. It is a book of prophecy. Therefore will I give thanks to you, O Eternal, among the heathen, and sing praises to your name. When will we be able to do that? In the millennium. Great deliverance gives he to his king, and shows mercy to his anointed, to David, and to his seed forevermore. 
life eternal in the kingdom of God with King David. There's the picture laid out before us this week. So let's stop there for today.